You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Welcome to T-Minus Deep Space. I'm Maria Varmazas, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Deep Space includes extended interviews and bonus content that takes a deeper look into some of the topics that we cover on our daily program. We hope you enjoy. Now today we're joined by Peter W. Singer, Peter is a strategist at a nonprofit think tank called New America and also a managing partner at Useful Fiction, a company that brings together narrative and nonfiction products to help organizations better tell their important and real stories. Peter is also a futurist with some really fascinating perspectives on how all kinds of technology, including cybersecurity and space technology, could be used in commerce or conflict in the future. We start with Peter's take on what useful fiction does. So maybe the way to go after it is, is with a story. Um, my background is that I've written a number of nonfiction books on topics that range from cybersecurity to um, robotics, the future of warfare. Um, and yet it was when I teamed up with a friend and, and now my business partner, August Cole, who was um, the defense industry reporter for the Wall Street Journal, so had done a lot of space work as well. We teamed up and we wrote a novel called Ghost Fleet. Ghost Fleet was a novel that imagined what a war between the U.S. and China and Russia might look like. But it's different in that the form of the novel was really a way of sharing nonfiction research. Um, it was a novel, but with 27 pages of footnotes. And every single technology in it, every single trend, even some of the quotes from the characters were actually pulled from the real world. It had a, a very um, important space element to it, um, helping to introduce to readers um, both you know, what's going on in space, particularly um, Chinese uh, efforts, um, but also the importance of space to not just the modern economy, but to the military. And that um, if there are vulnerabilities there, it could very much hamstring the U.S. military. What happened is um, that book, uh, it, it sold well, but um, even more, it ended up having a greater policy impact than any of our nonfiction products. 
we were uh, invited to share its real world lessons everywhere from uh, the White House uh, to invited to testify to Congress four different times to briefings on the deck of aircraft carriers, you name it. What was really interesting, and this points to the power of story, is that it wasn't just briefings on, you know, share the real world lessons, change policies. There were three different government investigations launched to keep things that happened in our novel, our useful fiction, from coming true. Um, so it, you know, kind of didn't predict the future, but prevented a future. The flip side is there were a couple of programs launched to make things in the book come true, um, most notably a $3.6 billion Navy ship program that um, they titled Ghost Fleet. Gave me zero dollars for it. So, but what came out of it is that we realized that there was a uh, effect that could happen when you bring together the power of the oldest communication technology of all story, but apply it to nonfiction, apply it to real world problems. And so we launched a business around it. We basically do two things. We'll take um, organizations, white papers, strategy reports, conference proceedings, anything that an organization I think is really important, but isn't connecting well with their target audience. And we'll take that and turn it into a scenario, turn it into a story. And then the second thing is that we run uh, leader training conferences on how to do strategic narrative. Thank you for the intro. I appreciate that. And yeah, there's so much going on in, in space, especially in this new space era that we're in. And you were mentioning earlier that you've done some work for uh, both the DOD and for a conference, InterAstra. Can you tell us a little bit about the items that you did there? InterAstra, if, if folks are not familiar with it, is um, a really fantastic conference on exploring the present and future of space. People behind it are um, Che and Charlie Bolden, um, uh, Che, former Marine officer turned um, just wonderful business entrepreneur. And then Charlie Bolden, you know, uh, former head of NASA, astronaut, Marine general, you name it. So uh, they created this event. It was different in that it brought together a wider set of um, people than um, certainly is the norm that I've experienced, where you had um, folks from uh, across the um, space industry. And so that, you know, means not just the the big companies, you know, the traditional government contractors, the new big entrants. I mean, people know their names, but also a lot of small companies um, from around the world. But they also had people with backgrounds that range from, you know, working on um, new uh, science products um, and everything from food to energy that all have space applications, researchers to um, uh, experts in space law to creative types, also a lot of folks from government, software companies, you name it. It was after trying to drive a different conversation related to space. And so what we did for them is two things. One, we created a different kind of um, pre-read. They identified a couple of key issues that they wanted their conference to explore, um, had different panel tracks around it. Um, one was uh, around the questions of um, the future space, both looking outward, but um, looking back. What, what, what benefit will it cause for planet Earth for the rest of us, not just for a small number of individuals? Because if it doesn't, uh, then we have a very different discussion around the space economy. Another was about um, who is in the future of space it relates to diversity questions. And a third was around 
questions of uh, future competition and even conflict in space. And how do we keep it from ruining it for the rest of us? How do we manage that? You know, and that's everything from great power rivalry to, um, you know, space situational awareness and deconfliction. So what we did before the conference is took those themes, took those um, nonfiction nuggets and turned it into both a short story and some visual artwork that essentially envisioned the future of space. We told them through a, essentially it was a fake newspaper profile of a space entrepreneur 30 years out. So it was a, a, a woman who's in the space business, she's imagined, but through this almost like a New York Times Sunday Magazine profile, you know, meet so-and-so who's this new interesting person, and there was some artwork for it as well, but through telling her story, we kind of built her off of both real-world people in the space economy today, but also the story of um, Levi Strauss. So, you know, if space, if, if the hope is that it's the next gold rush, right, some people struck gold. A lot of people did not. And the same thing's happening in the real space economy right now. But kind of the long-term um, effect were the people like Levi Strauss that went out there and said, I'm not going to be a miner. I'm going to create a hardware store. Oh, by the way, you know, I'm going to supply the miners what they need. Oh, by the way, I come up with a new different kind of product, um, blue jeans, and that's how I make it. And so I don't want to give away the whole story, but it's kind of around structures and regolith, which is like not as exciting as rare earth minerals, but- Pretty cool though. Yeah, cool stuff. <laughs> but yeah. So by telling her imagined story, you got those themes that they wanted people thinking about, engaging with before they got there. And then it also allowed people in attendance to reference something in the conversation. So the cool thing of this event and, you know, similar conferences, you get people from a lot of different backgrounds, but that means they don't have as many shared experiences. And so what you can do is give them what we call a, um, a synthetic experience where they can say, oh, it's just like in that story when, and the other people are like, oh yeah, I know that. So we both did support on the front end. And then um, what we're doing now for them is after effect. So there were three days of you know really great conversations. And what we've done is taken those thematic conversations and turn those into narratives. So what are the important findings of bringing together all these great people? You know, you can generate out a conference report and those are great, but you know, most people don't read conference reports. So we turn those into um, stories that envision it in a manner that strikes home. So, um, oh, one was on um, the concerns among people from across the space industry that if we don't figure out um, deconfliction and space situational awareness, you know, it's going to ruin it for the rest of us, that accidents could cause major, major effects. A sub-theme on that was, um, uh, hey, U.S., you need to have a little bit of modesty. You've been a space leader, but you're not the only player. And if you don't watch out, you could not be one of the leaders of this next conversation. And so kind of taking some of those themes, we built out a scenario that is in a, um, it's a, it's a post mild Kessler effect. Mild Kessler. <laughs> so somewhat usable Leo or? <laughs> well, no, but that's actually, you know, there, there's the general view of Kessler effect, which is like, 
we'll never be able to use space forever. And that the scientists would say, actually, it's not really like that. And so that's kind of, I was being, you know, so it's, it's the way like a space expert would reference it as opposed to like sci-fi. And it's, so it's in the wake of it and it's at an international negotiation where a lot like what happens in, you know, real world arms control, you don't get the negotiation until after the bad day. And, but it's told from the story of the negotiation is happening in Africa, area of kind of future space economy, but it's told from the perspective of the U.S. government ambassador who's sort of on the sidelines of this event because they've been blamed in part for why things went bad. And so the other new space powers, both private sector, but also the Africa's, the Brazilian space, they're basically like, hey, you and Russia, you had your time, you're still in there, but we're not going to let you lead the conversation anymore. And so it's this, again, we're not saying this will happen. It's solely to give someone a way to um, visualize, to understand, hey, what would a Kessler effect really look like? When you say Kessler effect, what would it mean for industry? What would it mean for telecom, et cetera? And then the second part, hey, when we say there's a world where the U.S. might not be leading the conversation, it's um, we basically took the experience that U.S. negotiators have at like certain environmental treaties and replicate that on the space side and say, hey, this has happened in an environment where you're on the sidelines. This could happen for you in space uh, negotiations. And that's why you don't want it to happen, right? So I, I know I've droned on, but like the result of that, that, that scenario came out of multiple hours of these space leaders meeting and talking about these issues. And then, you know, these are the prime things that they said, nonfiction, we want to share with people. We want them to understand risk of Kessler effect, but also not the crazy sci-fi version of it. Grounded in reality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We want yeah. them to understand, you know, this or, you know, a different one was on, um, uh, it was about the role of crowdsourcing and, um, space projects. And so we created a scenario to tell about it. And the idea was, you know, from the space economy side, we're learning new means of using the wider public, not just as an enthusiast, but like to be part of space missions. And so that's cool. That's exciting. Let's envision. Okay. But what does that mean? What would it look like in execution? We'll be right back after this quick break. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Given that especially Russia has said within the last year that commercial targets in space are kind of a valid target in a war situation, should private organizations be going through wargaming scenarios kind of like what you described? And if so, like, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think there's two types of uh, wargaming, so to speak, that needs to happen. And it's a parallel. I know you've got a cybersecurity background. It's a parallel for any company that's, you know, working in cybersecurity but now, frankly, you know, any major corporation that might be touched by geopolitical events. And I think there's, there's two parts, particularly to the space economy. There first are the issues of, you know, what are your assets up there and what are the potential threats to them? Because bluntly, you are, whether we want to have kind of a legal debate, whether you're off limits, um, the hard reality is that at least some of the actors don't think you're off limits. And uh, we've seen that, you know, in, in certain means in Ukraine related, you know, so we didn't have ASATs going off, but we, we did have longer conversation, but basically cyber digital and jamming targeting of space assets. And, um, oh, by the way, in turn, we saw certain private corporations, not just in the space industry, but in technology and software, decide to be players in the fight in some way, shape or form. So there's one of, um, hey, what are my assets up there? What is potentially at risk? Game out, what might be my response to it? Okay, there's a second part. This part's going to be a little bit more awkward for people. How are you owned by China? And I don't mean directly owned, but I mean owned either in terms of supply chain vulnerabilities, market dependencies, or um, financing, indirect ownership, et cetera. And that would apply to China most particularly, but you also should think about it relative to you know other large authoritarian state actors out there, whether they're in the Middle East or whatnot. In, in any kind of international um, tension, but particularly uh, if there was a risk of you know, the United States and um, democracies versus China, a Taiwan Straits crisis or something like that. The issue is not just, oh, someone might go after my satellites. It's all the other means of pressure that might be brought to bear. And so, you know, I will speak about a particular space actor. I wrote this during Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, where I said, you know, look, Elon Musk may own Twitter right now, but China and the Gulf states own Elon Musk. They don't actually own him, but they both were crucial to his ability to purchase Twitter. Um, you know, he's he's much wealthier than I, but he's he was cash poor because it's all kind of wrapped up in stock. And so he actually needed money from other actors to buy Twitter. 
um, multiple billions of dollars um, via uh, you know uh, Saudi and um, Qatari investors and wealth funds. Um, and uh, but also, you know, most of his money is bound up in um, not SpaceX, but in Tesla, Tesla stock. And Tesla um, depends on the good graces of the Chinese Communist Party for um, its ability to continue to manufacture to expectations and to um, make sales and profits. Um, it's its most profitable market. And so there is both kind of the um, a voiced, if you do, and we've seen China do this to other actors. If you do X, I will pressure you in this other way. I will shut down your factories. I will cause restrictions to what you buy. But more powerful with these actors is the unvoiced. And so, you know, we've seen this related to Twitter where there's a lot of discussion around censorship, but there's also self-censorship, who you're willing to criticize, who you're not willing to criticize. And that's just to give an example of a single major space player. But again, it, it applies to almost any company that's, you know, doing business in China or vulnerable to China in some way, shape or form. You are working with an authoritarian state or working in an authoritarian state that has previously shown a willingness to put pressure on corporations and or individuals through, you know, and it might be on you, it might be on your employees, it might be on your stock price, it might be on your supply chain. Stop kidding yourself. And so those are the two, you know, kind of war gaming or what we call red teaming, you know, direct threats to your space assets. But what are the indirect threats? And frankly, um, the second ones might be more meaningful because those are the things that that shape the environment before the crisis, that that shape you know what people are even willing to contemplate. But again, what what I'm after is not just the deliberate, you know, like my supply chain has been cyber hacked or it's been slowed down. I'm talking about more the the pressure put upon it by an authoritarian state that either doesn't like what you're doing or more subtly, the threat that they might do so and how that changes what that corporation is willing to do or say. So it's kind of, um, let's do a non-space parallel. There was a lot of controversy around like the NBA and the NBA um, not being willing to criticize China. And it was after China basically pressured their TV broadcasts and there was a lot of like, why doesn't the NBA stand up? And I'm like, hey, guys, <laughs> um, there's a lot of there's uh, certain technology companies and even aerospace and space companies that you seem to love that actually have the same phenomena going on and didn't have the, the very direct pressure put on them the way China went after the NBA. But you watched it and said, oh, crap, what if they did that to me? I think it's good to say it a little more out loud explicitly that these these really need to be planned for, or at least not just sort of hoping the worst won't happen. <laughs> so certainly. The ostrich strategy has never been a good business or security strategy. No, it has not. <laughs> That's very true. Given that you are a futurist, what space technologies are you looking at? I know we're, we're talking potentially decades. What are you excited about what's coming from the new space era? Oh, gosh. Um <laughs> How long do we have? Uh, <laughs> a couple of things, um, you know, it's just right off the top of my head. I think the democratization of space and the ability for, and uh, you know, we're, and I'm not talking about a couple private companies. I'm talking about the ability of, you know, launch to be democratized, but also like CubeSats and just 
what that unlocks for us back on planet Earth and us being everything from, you know, think about what happens when, you know, everything from individual military units having their own CubeSat, not, you know, the overall U.S. military network, but the individual unit to when a real estate company has its own CubeSat or whatever, or a high school or, you know, that part and and all the the benefit um, that that potentially brings when you think about like, you know, the the environmental um, potential, all that. Okay, so that's one area. Second would be the, you know, use of space to go after uh, like rare earth and how that, you know, both maybe solve some long-term economic issues that we have here, as well as, you know, sets off a whole new kind of wonderful, cool, exciting economy out there to other materials that excite me. Water, location of water, who owns that real estate, so to speak, um, and how do they cooperate out there and means that, that because they, they can either compete or they cooperate when you think about all the different state government, state agency, but private sector, academic actors, et cetera, that might be all around the same locale on the moon. And then, like I said, you know, regolith, kind of boring, mundane, the concrete of space. But man, if you get that going, you um, allow cheaper long-term habitation, um, protection from radiation. So we're going to end on that one. And that's it for T-minus Deep Space for June 3rd, 2023. We'd always love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in our show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thank you for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.